Thank you, Becky. If you have your Bible with you this morning, turn to the book of James, chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. Uh, So we have arrived at the very last passage, the final thoughts of James as he is uh, ending this this passage, or this this book, this this letter uh, to uh, the Christians that are are spread out as he he says to them. But I want to ask you if kind of a sobering thought this morning. As we begin to look at this, what would your last words be? Have you ever thought about that, this idea of last words, that if, if you were to have, no longer see someone again, what would your last words to that person be? Uh, because we know, unfortunately, the, the temporary nature of this life. And uh, there was actually a, a, a show I remember seeing years ago where uh, there was a one of the main characters, his father passed away very unexpectedly in, in the show, and, and he was a little distraught because all of his brothers and his, his fa- the family and friends had all these wonderful last moments uh, with his father, but his last moments were his dad just recommending a movie to him uh, and just saying, hey, you should go watch this movie. It's pretty good. And uh, so he just doesn't feel like it, it was meaningful, and, and he is distraught about this, ends up having a uh, a voicemail that was from his dad that he had never checked, and it was just an accidental call. So he's even more distraught, but then he realizes at the end of it that his dad picks up the phone and has some, some kind words for him. But if we think about that, it really changes the way we interact with one another, doesn't it? The, the idea of if you never spoke to someone again, there might be somebody that you think about right now that you might would want to talk to a little bit differently. But James here is writing this letter to... As he says at the very beginning, we'll go back to the beginning to look at it. James, the servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ of the 12 tribes in the dispersion greeting. So he's writing this letter. It's, it's what would be probably a circulated letter. Okay, it's going to go to a bunch of different Christians in different places with just some common uh, a- a- admonition, some common uh, exaltation, some, some things that they all need to hear, right? As, as believers, they all, no matter where they're at, they're facing similar trials, similar things, and they all need to hear this. And so his ending is a little different than some of the other letters we see from, from, the, from the Apostle Paul, where he's writing to a specific church, right? In Ephesians, he's writing to the church in Ephesus. And so his endings of those letters usually kind of said like, hey, tell so-and-so I said hi. These people say hi to you as well. I hope to come to you soon. James doesn't do any of that. So his ending of this book is, is kind of what is important. What is he going to close on? And so that's what we're going to look at as we turn to verses 13 through 20 of chapter 5. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed." The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we go to as we continue today. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time that we have together just to spend in your word. And we, we thank you for 
Your very word that you've given us, the, the word of God that we can know and we can look and we can see what you say to us, how you want us to live, how we should, we should correct our lives, how we should change our lives, how we should follow you. And God, I pray that this morning that, that there wouldn't be anything that would distract us or anything that we would, we would hold back, Lord, but that we would examine ourselves and, and see what your word says to us and how we should live our lives for you. Father, I pray that you be with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what is the, the first thing that we see that he says? The first uh, final thoughts is what prompts us to prayer? He talks about the things that prompt us to prayer at the beginning of this passage. And, and many times you see in Scripture, in many works of literature, any kind of book, uh, there's a lot of parallelism, right? So how did he begin this letter? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet ver- trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So when you suffer, when you face trials... Count it joy. So at the very end, what's he also talk about? Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. So, so what prompts us to pray? The first thing, is anyone among you suffering? We all suffer, don't we? In various ways, at various times. There's, there's various ways that we suffer. And there's not a single person that is above suffering. We all will have suffered at one point or another. To various degrees, Right? Sometimes there are short-term illnesses that we suffer for a while and get better. Sometimes we have chronic things that we deal with where we suffer daily. The Apostle Paul had one of these things where he said he has a thorn in his side that he suffered with. Sometimes there's things that are outside of our control or outside of us that cause us to suffer. And today is one of those days where we reflect and we remember the lives that were lost on 9-11 in 2001. And we remember those who still suffer today from what happened on that day. We all suffer. And the word for suffering in this passage really is talking about suffering misfortune. Things are going bad. So is, is anything going bad for you? What, what does he say to do? Let him pray. So suffering in our life should prompt prayer. When we suffer, when things are going bad for us, when things are, are causing issues in our life, we should go to the Lord in prayer, right? And we see this when, when Paul was writing, I think it's in the book Philippians, that, that we should go to, to the Lord in prayer with, with thanksgiving and, and, and seek Him in prayer. But I don't think this is usually our, our natural response. Most often when we suffer, when things are going badly for us, what is our natural response? Complain. That's usually the most default response. When, when you have a bad thing happen, the first response is a negative reaction to that negative thing. You ever... Go, you're, you're, you're going somewhere and you drop something and it breaks, right? The immediate response of what's happening. When, when someone does something bad to you to complain about that person, to go and, and to cause to, to, the negativity that comes to us, we want to put back out. We, it's not our natural response to go to the Lord in prayer. And oftentimes, uh, you, you may have heard this idea that, that hurt people hurt people. When we take suffering and we experience suffering in our lives and we bottle that up and we don't go to the Lord in prayer with it and we, we deal with it in our lives, most often what that's going to do is come back out toward other people. And sometimes this isn't even veiled. I don't know if you've realized that, that in, the, in the military, one of the things that they intend to happen is that the recruits that come in and go through the, the training that's rigorous and it's difficult for them, Part of the intention is that one day, some of those men will then also be hard on the future one. And the intention of that is to raise people that aren't prepared for military life and to make them harder, 
to, to harden them for what is to come. And so in some ways that is, is a good thing, but in life when we don't intend for that to happen, when, when we don't want to hurt others because we've been hurt, but how often do we see that happen? People that when they go through, they start a career and, and their bosses are really hard on them and they're like, man, I really don't like working for this guy. But then 40 years later, who are they just like? How many, how many children had parents that were very hard on them and they become just like their parents? Suffering, if not taken to God, will turn us into people we don't want to be. So is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. This is very clearly an example of when there is a problem, you need to have the appropriate solution, right? What, what's the phrase? The squeaky, gil, squeaky wheel gets what? Gets the grease, right? You don't put the grease on all the good wheels and let the squeaky one keep squeaking, right? So if anyone's suffering, he needs to pray. When there is a need, it needs to be met. The need of, of suffering, the need of hardship, of trial, is met through prayer. So what does it mean to pray? How should we pray? Really, pray, prayer is just communicating with God, taking your needs, taking your desires to God. But how do we do it? I don't really think there's a wrong way to do it. We can talk to God. We can share our concerns. We can pour out our heart to Him. If you, you look through the Psalms, there are people pouring their heart out to God based on what's going on in their situation. Now, there's a few ways that you can, you can think of to, to pray. One that I like that's really easy to remember is Acts, like the book of Acts, A-C-T-S adoration. When you pray, try to adore God for who He is and what He's done in your life, and to just exalt Him for who He is. Confession, confessing the things in your life that aren't right, where you see in your life that you need to, where you've sinned and you need to follow Him more faithfully. Thanksgiving, to thank God for all that He's done, all the blessings that He has given you. And supplication, and this is where you go to God with what you need, where you're suffering, where others are suffering, and, and to pray a few Wednesday nights ago, we talked about the, this idea of praying the Bible and going through the book of Psalms. And, and it's so simple. Look at a psalm, open it up, and, and read what it's saying, and pray through what you see. Pray through what you see in the book of Psalms. Whatever it brings to your mind, let that be your prayer for that day. So then we move on. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. So this is another example of a, of a life state. So one person is suffering. Their hardship, things are going bad. The other person is happy. Things are going good. What should they do? Praise. It is the same idea, this communication with God. And again, I don't think it's our natural response. Most often when things are going well in our life, our, our default is to ignore God. To think we've got everything going together, going right, going together, and we don't need to look to God, because everything's going right in our life. But when things are going bad, we need to look to God. And when things are going well, we need to look to God. So happiness demotes an emotion and not circumstance. It's important to know in this passage, you could be suffering and be happy, right? It says to count it joy if you, when you experience trials of various kinds. So there might be people who have difficult circumstances that are cheerful. You ever met those people? There's a particular family that I know of that they have experienced things that I can't imagine with one child dealing with enormous disease and coming through that and immediately finding out their next child has a similar disease. But these people glorify God in everything. They point to God in everything they do because they know that God is where their blessing comes from. So 
our cheerfulness and our happiness, if, if it is coming from God, may be in the midst of difficult circumstances. So when we are cheerful, we should praise God. This is a difference in our posture toward God when we're communicating with Him. Praying to God out of, of suffering is asking Him to intervene, asking Him to help us, to lift us up, to help change our circumstances. While praising God in the middle of, of good things happening is celebrating all that He's done for us. It's the same thing. It's communicating to God, but it's the posture of our communication. Thankfulness and celebration versus asking and crying out in need. Then we see another thing that prompts prayer. Is anyone among you sick? Is anyone among you sick? This need prompts prayer. We should not be afraid to ask God to intervene in our situations. But this need is one where he involves others. Involves others. Is anyone among you sick? He doesn't say to pray. He says to let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And so this is what we see is called intercession. It's where others pray on our behalf, right? Here's one thing we see in Scripture is if there is something going on in your life, if you have difficulty, if you are sick, we should share that with one another. Why? So that we can pray for one another. We should care for one another. But you know what someone can't do for you? They can't pray for you if they don't know that you need to be prayed for. And so we should be willing to share and to share with others because God has given us one another to build each other up, to pray for one another. Specifically in this instance, he says, let him call for the elders of the church. Now, elders does not mean the people who have uh, been blessed with many years in this passage. That's not what it means by the word elder here. Uh, the word elder is presbyterian. It's where you may hear of the Presbyterian church. They have elders in their church. Uh, they are, uh, but basically what it means is spiritual leaders of the church. Functionally, you might think of this as pastors. It's, it's not the word for deacons, but generally people who are helping lead the church. Let them call for the leaders of the church. They can come and pray for the one who is sick, anointing them with oil. So why would they anoint with oil? There's two reasons that it could be. Uh, one might be the idea of the medicinal purposes. You know, the, 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 if you've, especially a lot of skin illnesses, oil could be medicinal in those purposes, but it also could be religious, where it is a, a consecration, a setting apart uh, on behalf of her in the name of the Lord. And it seems to be a, a, a physical action with a spiritual significance. Anointing with oil, praying for them. Uh, it's not, that this, it's not that as though the oil is a, a magical thing that is going to cause healing, but it is simply uh, to consecrate, appoint, anointing them, him in oil in, in, with the name, in the name of the Lord. It's a, something to do in order to set apart, to consecrate on behalf uh, of the person. So that's what prompts us to prayer, these different circumstances. Really, the answer is, any stage you find yourself in life, whether it's bad, whether it's good, whether you're sick, really whether you're healthy, that's maybe where you're, where you're cheerful, what should we do? We should go to the Lord in prayer. But then we see what prayer can do in this passage. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. We see here that prayer heals. Prayer heals in this passage. So there's various approaches to this understanding, and you'll hear various people tell you different things. There are some churches you may go into where they will say that healing was strictly for the time of the apostles. And so since the apostles are not here, healing does not occur in the way that we see it talked about in Scripture. And then you'll go to some churches where they will have a time where they will say, if you are sick, come on down, we're going to heal you right now. 
So these are the two extremes of this expression of what it means to, to see healing in Scripture. But here's the thing is, it's in the Bible. And so what do we do when something's in the Bible? We know it's the Word of God. We want to deal with it appropriately. So it's not, some would say that in this passage, he's talking about a spiritual situation. This person needs healing from a spiritual situation. And so that's why it would still apply today, that this is a spiritual sickness, a spiritual, they're, they're wandering from God. And so if someone is, is not well, because this word that is translated as sick is really, is, is anyone among you downcast or, or out? But it's, it's probably accurately translated as sick. Some think it might be physical only, right? That it's only sickness or perhaps it's both. But what does it mean? Because it, it, it seems to say here let him, that the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. Does it mean that if you pray for someone in faith that they absolutely will be healed? There are some that take it to mean this. We've all heard stories of people that would deny going to the doctor or deny medication because they believed that if they just simply would pray with enough faith, they would be healed. I don't think that's what this passage is talking about. Right? We see also the Apostle Paul, I mentioned earlier, he had a thorn in his flesh. It was most likely a physical ailment. Some think it was his, his vision. Paul could not see very well. Right? One of his letters at the end of it, he says, see, I'm writing this with my own hand. Why would he have to do that? Someone else transcribed his letters because he couldn't see very well. But he's saying, I, I'm writing this with my hand. This is me. But what did the Lord do? Did the Lord heal him? Do you think the, the Apostle Paul had faith? Absolutely. They didn't heal him. Why? He didn't heal him because his power is made perfect in weakness. So, uh, so we can't just view God as, as a genie, as though he's in a bottle, and if we will simply believe things in, in our will, that God will act as though we want him to act. Right? So when we pray within God's will, God will move. Do I believe that God can heal people today? I absolutely do. I believe that he can. Do I believe that if, if he doesn't heal, that it's because we have a lack of faith? I don't believe that. Rather, I do believe that only a prayer of faith is what will bring healing. Earlier in this passage, it says that you ask and you don't... Earlier in this book, in chapter 1, it says er, you ask and you don't receive because you doubt. A person that doubts is double-minded and shouldn't suppose he'll receive anything from the Lord, right? So we, if we doubt, we won't receive healing. That's what it's saying, is that if there's a prayer, if we ask in a prayer of faith, the prayer of faith will heal. If you pray with doubt, is, are we going to receive healing? No, it's not a prayer of doubt. It's not a prayer where we kind of think that God might move. It's a prayer of faith. So only, healing can only come from a prayer of faith, but that does not necessarily mean that healing will absolutely come when we pray in faith, because we must pray within God's will. We must pray and see what God is doing. But we see something interesting in this passage, the intertwining of the spiritual and the physical. All right, so he says here, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. All right, so the one who is prayed for will be saved, and the one who has their sins forgiven will be healed. It seems backwards. Normally, you would think that the one who is prayed for will be healed, and the one who has their sins forgiven will be saved. So we see this intertwining of spiritual and the physical. 
Pray for the sick so they may be saved. Confess your sins so that you may be healed. It's the intertwining of this idea. So one of the questions this passage makes me ask, and I wonder if it makes you ask it as well, does sin make us sick? Because it seems to have this indication that if you confess your sins, you will be healed from continuing this passage, the sickness that's being experienced. Not usually, but we need to acknowledge that this is not impossible. Jesus said in John 5, 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see you are well, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. As he healed the blind man, he said to sin no more so that nothing worse may happen to him, to them. Paul said to the church in Corinth regarding the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine through 30, for anyone who eats and drinks concerning the body and eats, eats and drinks judgment, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. So what does this mean? God punishes sin. We know this. We see this in Scripture where there are people who sin and they do things, they disobey God, and we see what? God immediately punish. We see it in the New Testament where Ananias and Sapphira, they, they sell the property and they say, hey, we sold the property, we're giving you the money, and they hold some back from themselves. They, they seek to lie, make themselves look good, while holding back profit for themselves. What happens to both of them? They die. They're punished for their sin. So sometimes people are punished for their sin. This is not necessarily an outright condemnation, but it's sometimes disciplinary leading to repentance. Oftentimes we see in Scripture when when people are afflicted because of sin in their life, it is to cause them to be aware and to turn a new direction, particularly in the Old Testament. When people are sinful, there is punishment to turn them a new direction direction. But we do see that sickness is not usually caused by sin. And the same thing with Jesus in John 9, 1 through 3. As he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth. And the disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? Jesus answered him, it was not, this man, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So Jesus rebuked the idea that this man sinned, but it said instead that the works of God might be displayed in him. The reality is that sickness is part of a fallen world. When we go through this world and we all get sick as we do, and we realize that part of that is that God's design has been broken. And death and pain and suffering and sickness and sin, all of these things come from the fall. And it is all going to be made right in the end when, when God comes back and, and, and when, we have, when we live in eternity with Him. But what we do see for certain is that sickness should be a time of self-reflection. When we suffer sickness, when we deal with sickness, we should never seek to only physically become well, but we should also seek to spiritually become well. We should never seek only our physical good while neglecting the spiritual. So as we seek to become physically whole, we should use that opportunity to also reflect and seek spiritual wholeness as well. So maybe in the coming year, you will be sick Are you sick because of your sin? I I don't really usually think so. But what you can do is, and this passage seems to say, ask others to pray for you. Reflect on your life. Is there sin in your life? Repent of that sin. And continue to follow God. We don't ever seek goodness in this life without neglecting our spiritual life as well. Another part of this that we see is to confess our sins to one another. Confess our sins to one another. 
Now, what this is not, this is not a command that, that we must confess our sins in order to be forgiven for them. There is one place we must confess our sins to, and that is to God. But, but, if we want to be made whole, if we want to be healed, if we want to live this life as obediently as we can, to see the most spiritual good in this life that we can, we should confess our sins to one another. The reasons for this, it creates an atmosphere of accountability and encouragement. It creates an atmosphere of accountability and encouragement. When you confess your sins to your brothers and sisters in Christ, they can pray for you, they can encourage you, they can rebuke you, they can help you to overcome those things in your life. There are many things that you may have struggled with in your past that someone is currently struggling with. And so when they come to you and they confess their sins or you confess your sins and they've struggled with it, what are you able to do? Help build one another up. You can help build one another up. So here's what I want to ask you. Do you have someone you can share your struggles with? Are there people in your life that you trust, that you can go to, you can say, I haven't been doing this very well. I realize this is a place I'm falling short. Can you pray for me? Can you help me? Can you speak the Word of God into my life to to encourage me? Can you show me when I don't even see things in my life that I need to correct? You should have a person like that in your life. We should all have levels of accountability in our life. Willing accountability. Not for fear of punishment. Not for fear of shame. It's the opposite of that. It's to help one another, build one another up. And here's a question also to consider. Are you a person that can have struggles shared with you? Are you the kind of person that someone can come to and share their struggles? Or if they come to you, will they be met with judgment or shame? Can they trust the confidentiality that if you share something sensitive, if they share something sensitive with you, that it will remain there? Because the purpose of this is not gossip. The purpose is to build one another up for the edification of each believer. So do you have that person, and are you that person for someone else? We should seek to have both of those in our life. So it's levels of accountability, but it's also for more accurate prayer. How can we pray for one another if we don't know what's going on? Right? We live in a world that likes to put our best foot forward in every literal sense of it. With social media, you don't, you don't see the, the family. You see the family taking the picture as they go to church looking all pretty. You don't see all of the fussing and fighting that took to get everyone to smile in that picture. And so you might see people and you think, man, they have the best marriage. But perhaps those people, if they would confess to one another, you know, I haven't been a very loving husband lately. I haven't been a very loving wife lately. I haven't been the best parent lately. I've been so harsh with my kids lately. If we don't confess those things, how can we pray for one another? If we don't share that, not for shame, not for judgment, but to build one another up, to ask to be prayed for. How many times do you get asked that question? Is there any way I can pray for you? Oh, no, everything's going good. Is it really? Is is it really? We need to be able to share with one another how we can pray for one another, how we can help each other to grow. And that's the other reasons for our sanctification and our holiness. We confess our sins to one another so that we can become more like Christ. So that each and every day that we live our life, we can become more like Christ. Because, and part of this is 
that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Prayer is powerful, but is all prayer powerful? Is it all equally powerful? The, power, the prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. The implication here is if you ever pray and it seems like nothing is happening, you might want to look at what you're doing and how you're living your life. There are times where people have asked questions. They've gone to a pastor. They've gone to a friend. Why do I feel so far from God? Why does it feel like God never hears me? It doesn't take long to look and to see that everything in that person's life has nothing to do with wanting to be obedient to God. Prayer of a, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and it's working. If we want our prayer to be powerful, to, to have impact, to be praying about the right things, we should seek to be righteous. What's the example here? That Elijah, when he prayed, he was a man with, like a, with a nature like ours, so he's no better than us. He's not higher than us. We need to remember this. We look through Scripture. The only exception is Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh. He is, he is fully God, fully man. But every other person we see is a man like us, is a woman like, a, like, like you, a person that God used for His glory. And they were no better than you, nothing more spectacular than you, but God used them for their glory. But the prayer of the righteous has great power and it's working. So if we want to be effective in our prayer, we should seek to be in right standing with God. Because we will align our prayer life with what God wants, but also it seems to be indicated that the prayer of a righteous person has great power and it's working. If we wonder why our prayer does not seem effective, and then we look at our life and it's filled and riddled with sin that we're not addressing, we might have found the answer. Why do I feel far from God? Why does it feel like God doesn't hear from me? Well, God has told you very specifically many things you ought to address in your life and you're not dealing with them. That could be the, that could be the problem. So what, what happened with Elijah? Prayed for Prayed it wouldn't rain, and it didn't for three years and six months until he prayed again, and it did. Now, was he powerful? Did he do this? No. God did. But he was a righteous man following God, and God heard his prayers. So the last thing that we get to, verses 19 and 20. For the, for the first part of this, we've seen that we should pray in all circumstances, and our prayer is powerful. But he concludes with a, with a passage right here, and it's a, it's a difficult passage. My brothers, if any of you wanders from the truth and brings him back, let him know that whoever brings, him back, brings back a sinner from wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is a difficult passage. But the thing with difficult passages is that we need to run headlong into, the, into them. If a passage causes problems in your mind. If a passage makes you question things, you need to figure those things out. You need to try to sort out the answers to the things that are difficult. Ignoring them is not the answer. So this past Wednesday, we started our study in, in the book called Do You Believe? 12 Historic Doctrines for Everyday Life. And so a doctrine is what we believe. In this passage, if we're looking at it accurately, um, would, if we're looking at it at face value, rather, would appear 
to challenge a doctrine that I would say the vast majority of us hold to, the permanence of salvation, right? Summed up in a, in a phrase that you've probably all heard growing up, once saved, always saved, right? This idea that when you are saved, you cannot lose that salvation, that God has saved you and he will see you through to the end. But what do we see here? If anyone among you wanders from the truth, someone brings him back, let him know whoever brings him back, brings back a sinner from his wandering, will save his soul from death. So what's the implication? The one that wandered, had they not returned, would what? Their soul would face death. What's that sound like? Eternal punishment. So what's happening here? Is this saying that apostasy, that walking away from your salvation is is what happens here? We'll get to that in a few moments. But I want you to understand that when you look at this, you looked at it the same way I did. I asked Dennis this morning. I said, Dennis, what do you hear when you first get this? And and what what his answer was, was because it challenged him. And that, that should be, sometimes that'll be your result when you read Scripture. And he did give me an answer, and I liked his answer. But if anyone, the first thing I want you to see here is that if anyone, what is this a reminder to us? Not a single one of us is above struggling in our faith. How many people have you seen that have walked away from faith, that grew up in church and no longer are in church? People that were pastors that now proclaim themselves as atheists. This happens. Don't think of yourself as a person that is above struggling with your faith. We are all susceptible to disobedience. Now, I do believe in the permanence of salvation. We're going to get to that. I just want to preface that with you. I do believe in the permanence of salvation. I don't like the phrase, once saved, always saved, because of some of the implications, but I believe in what it should mean. But we're going to get to that. But we all can struggle. And when I say if you are a Christian who struggles, that does not mean you have lost your salvation. But we are all susceptible to struggling. And someone brings him back. Okay, So if anyone struggles, or if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back. So I want you to see clearly here that James is not above classifying who does what. If someone is sick, who do we call? It says the elders. Call the elders to come and pray for them. If anyone wanders and someone, that means the role of calling people to repentance is the role of everyone. Every believer should be involved in calling people to repentance, to come back to what they've said they have believed. So what I want, to see, I want to show you here is a distinction of two things. There is the return of the wandering Christian, and there is the first salvation of the one who appeared as a Christian. And this is where we're going in a few minutes. Whoever brings back a sinner will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So, If anyone among you wanders from the truth, someone brings him back, let him know whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul (coughs) from from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The word for sinner is harmatalos, from the word hamartia for sin. Okay, This word is exclusively used for lost people. 47 times. There's only one other time I thought that was maybe a little ambiguous, but that was in James, and he was being very harsh with them in how he was talking to them. 
He said, you adulterous people, cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded, right? So he's talking to them in terms of, you need to get it figured out. But in the, in, in the New Testament, when it says Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners, that's what it's talking about here, lost people. In the book of Romans, when he's talking about how, how should we, we have been saved, should we continue to live as sinners, lost people? No. So whoever brings back a sinner will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. What I believe this is saying here is that the one from among you who wanders from the truth, someone brings him back, who, who brings a sinner back from his wandering will save his soul, is, is bringing back the one who revealed themselves to have not been saved. So 1 John 2.19 says this, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not, that all are not of us. So what happens here? A person in the church, in the body of the church, leaves the faith. They denounce their faith. I'm no longer a Christian. Did that person once have salvation and then lose it? I would say that the Bible is very clear that when we have been saved, we cannot undo what God has done. And so when one wanders, one of two things can happen. They will either return with us and show themselves a believer and show that their faith is true and they will have been convicted the whole time they wandered or that person did not truly know Christ. And so when one brings back a sinner, a person who is lost, a person who does not know the truth, they have saved their soul from death, and, and that covers a multitude of sins. In some ways, I want to be clear with you here, in some ways this is a semantic argument. And so this is how at times we can, we can work with and we can realize that we're on the same team with those who we disagree on this doctrinal position. If a person leaves the, body of, uh, leaves the body of the church, they go out, they say they are an atheist, they no longer believe, and they die in that, I would say that person never truly knew Christ, or they would not have departed. And I want to I be clear, I'm not saying you know, God is the only one that knows their heart. A person that, that is struggling in their faith and is a Christian is not going to lose their salvation if they die in the middle of a struggle. You have a bad day, you yell at your, your spouse, you go, you have a car accident, you're, you don't have to worry about your salvation just because you had a bad day. What I'm saying is a person who truly will be judged as lost, okay? They leave the church, they grew up in church, they maybe made a profession, but then they leave it and they, they die and they'll be judged as guilty. So where we might say they never truly knew Christ, one person will say they knew Christ and walked away from it. They, they became apostate, they walked away from their faith. What is the end result? They're lost. So in some ways, it's a semantic argument for these people, okay? Because all we're arguing about is how they got to their end result. But in some ways, it's not. This is why I want to encourage you to take very seriously and to hold as dear the promise of the permanence of your salvation. The end of 1 John, he says, I write you these things so that you may know you have eternal life. We can be confident that if we have repented of our sin, we have hoped in Jesus for salvation, that we will be saved, that we will be 
counted as righteous because of what Jesus has done for us, not because of what we've done. We don't have to be fearful every day we live our life that we're going to fall short and lose our salvation. We don't have to do that. Scripture is clear that Christ is the one who does the work, not us. But what is the primary focus? What is James in this letter with? What are his final words? Whoever turns back, whoever brings back a sinner from wandering will save his soul from death. So what should we focus on? What is the last thing he focuses on? There's a lot of lost people. There's people that grew up among you, that have been in church. There's people that may be here today. That have, there's people that go their whole life in church that are lost. Whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, there is a little debate. Is that the multitude of sins, that person's or their own? Regardless, it is what we are called to do, to proclaim the gospel to those who are lost, to warn them, to share about what Jesus has done, to call them to repentance, to turn away from their sin, and to come to salvation. And, and so as we have this time where we're closing, we're, we're looking at this end, we're going to have a time of invitation. There are two things I want to invite you to do. I want to invite you to pray to God today. During this song, where you sit at the altar, wherever it is, if you're suffering, pray. If you are cheerful this morning, praise God. If you're sick, if, you're, if, you, if you have things that are going on in your life, I'll pray with you. There are others here who will pray with you. So I want to challenge you to pray this morning. And I want to challenge you to consider where you are in your relationship with God. Do you know Him this morning? Do, does your life reflect knowledge of Him, do, do saving knowledge? Do you live your life in such a way that you, your life has been bought by the blood of Jesus and you were a sinner going your own way and you realized that Christ died for you? He saved you and now you live for Him. Is there evidence of that in your life? Because if there is not, it is worth looking at whether you truly know Him. And if you do know Him this morning, are you in the business of sharing that with others? Of warning those who are living in their sin? Who are destined for destruction? Because that's what we are called to do. The altar will be open. I will be down front for prayer. But I would challenge you to do those two things during this time. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we want to thank You for this day that you've given us this time, we can come together and look at your word. And God, I pray that you would help us to be faithful to you, to always seek you in prayer, no matter what circumstances we face. God, I pray that you would just help us to seek after you, to seek to know you, to praise you, to pray to you, to confess to one another, to seek to follow you faithfully. And God, I pray that you will be with us, that we would be found faithful and, and be found in you, to have been saved by you. And God, I pray that you, we will be found as people who are constantly seeking to warn those who do not know you this morning and as we live our lives. And Father, if anyone does not know you, does not have a saving relationship with you this morning, I pray that today would be the day they would turn to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?